And once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 7? And as always, we'd like to welcome the new people. Good to see you this morning. And if you're uh, wondering, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning and find ourselves beginning John chapter 7 today. So let's read the first couple of verses. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand. There's about a six-month gap of time between the end of John chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. It is now fall in Israel. How do we know that? Because it says the feast of tabernacles was at hand, and that feast takes place in late September or early October. Now, the rest of John's gospel deals with the last six months of Jesus' time here upon the earth before his crucifixion. And I want you to be aware of something, that all the way through John's gospel, but especially in chapter 7, we get the clear impression that Jesus is living according to a divine time clock or schedule. We constantly read him saying things like, my hour has not yet come, and my time is at hand. Jesus' whole life was planned out in eternity past because he is God from all of eternity, second person of the Trinity. And so his whole life was planned before he was ever conceived in Mary's womb, everywhere he would go, when he would get there, who he would talk to, what miracles he would perform. It was all pre-planned, and it's very clear. As we read the Gospels, we get the clear impression that Jesus Christ was on a divine schedule, and he never missed an appointment. We read in the Bible, it says that he was born in the fullness of time. He died when his time had come, and he rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. In other words, right on time. And we read that he is going to return to the earth right on schedule. When is that going to be? I don't know. But it's going to be on schedule. And the signs are indicate, indicating it's going to be soon. Now look, we know that many people were skeptical of Jesus' claim to be Messiah especially those who lived in the town of Nazareth, where he grew up. Apparently, they had a hard time believing that Messiah could have such an ordinary childhood. Turn to Matthew 13 quickly. Now, he's already grown up and moved out of Nazareth and has been ministering for a while, and he comes back to his hometown and, and conducts some ministry and it says in verse 54, And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James, Josie, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Where does he come off calling himself the Messiah? So they were offended at him. So it was obvious that many uh, of the people in his own hometown didn't believe in him. But what comes through in John 7 is that his half-brothers didn't believe in him either. 
We see them in our text chiding him, challenging and even daring him to go to Jerusalem to declare himself openly to be the Messiah. We read in verse 3, his brother said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Look, they, they were thinking along these lines. And I can understand where they were coming from. Look, if you really are who you say you are, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, what are you doing hanging out here in the backwoods? Go to the big city. Go to Jerusalem. Declare yourself to be Messiah openly with, with miracles and all kinds of hoopla. What are you hanging out here for? This is backwoods country. Well, of course, John tells us in verse 1 why Jesus was staying away from Jerusalem. Because the Jews, in other words, the Jewish religious leaders, sought to kill him. And that's why he responded to his half-brother's challenge in verse 6, my time has not yet come. Again, giving us the clear imp implication that he was living according to a very definite timetable. And he didn't want to needless needlessly provoke his enemies to try to kill him before the appointed time by his father. But, but then notice what he said to his brothers, half-brothers. And this is really what I want to zero in on for the remainder of our time this morning. So verse 6, you know, he said to them, my time has not yet, wait, wait, go, go to Jerusalem, come on, let's get this thing going. If you're Messiah, declare yourself Messiah. He said, but my time has not yet come. He said, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you because, uh, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. I want you to look at what the Lord said. He first of all said in verse 6, My time has not yet come, but listen. Your time, he said, is always ready. In other words, the Lord was basically saying this. Look, my life is being lived according to a divine timetable, according to the sovereign will of my Father. Your lives are on no such schedule. Guys, an unbeliever's life isn't being lived according to God's schedule or program. The unbeliever wanders through life without a sense of eternal purpose and direction. Now, Paul made that very clear in Ephesians 2. So why don't you turn there? I want to hang out there for a little bit. Unbelievers wander through life without any sense of eternal purpose and direction. A sentiment that Paul echoes in Ephesians 2. Let's pick it up in verse 1. <coughs> Paul is talking to the believers there in Ephesus. And you he made alive, born again, who were once dead in trespasses and sins, in which, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. 
Now, the word walked in verse 2, in which you once walked, uh, is a Greek word that should be translated meandered. Meandered. Meander is a word that carries with it the idea of walking without purpose. Without purpose. You know, usually a person who is walking to a destination, who is walking with purpose, is looking straight ahead. There's a certain gate to their steps that tells you, look, they have somewhere to go. All right? That, uh, you know, they have some place in mind where they have to be. When you see a person meandering, you get the impression they're not really going anywhere in particular. Right? You see them walking down the street, looking around, taking in their surroundings, stopping to look into store windows. They're really not going anywhere in particular. They're just kind of wandering. One man said, it takes me five minutes to walk from one end of the mall to the other. It takes my wife all day. <laughs> and that, folks, is the difference between walking with purpose and meandering. <laughs> Can't get any better than that illustration. Uh, so that's the Greek word Paul used in Ephesians uh, uh, to, uh, 2. He said, we, we used to walk uh, according to you know, the course of the world. Uh, he uses the Greek word meander, and he uses it because he wants to contrast our lives before we received Jesus and then after. Paul is saying that before we received Jesus Christ into our hearts as our Lord and Savior, we were just meandering through life. That is, we really didn't have any eternal purpose to our life. I'm not saying we didn't have purpose. There are people who are doctors, engineers. I mean, there's a lot of people that have purpose in life, but not eternal purpose. And there's a big difference. We had that before we accepted Christ. You know, we were meandering. We really weren't really going anywhere. We thought we were. But in the eyes of God, there was no real purpose to our lives. We were just wandering from one mundane thing to another. So Paul says that we were once just meandering through life, and he adds this according to the course of this world. Now, the word world there doesn't mean earth. It means the world system. This fallen system that Satan, as the god of this world, is in control of. As one author put it, he likens this world, he says about this world system, the present system of things as conducted by those who have regard only to things seen and temporal and no regard to God or to the future life, in other words, eternal life, end quote. These are the folks that John talked about in the book of Revelation, where 10 or 11 times he talks about the earth dwellers. Now, earth dwellers are people that are not just unsaved, because a lot of folks are unsaved. Well, we were all unsaved at one time, and we received Christ, okay? So we were open, okay? And the idea was that you know, we were you know, living our lives just kind of doing our own thing. But, you know, God began to speak to our hearts and he began to open our eyes. And eventually we got saved and we became what the Bible calls sojourners and pilgrims. In other words, the earth was, not, this world was not our home. Uh, now we were pilgrims on our way to our real home, our heavenly home, which was heaven. 
But there are a group of people on this earth, a large group, that have no thought for eternal life or spiritual things, not things of the Bible. This is their home. This is where their environment. Uh, they don't want anything else but this life. This is all they want. For them, this is all there is. The Bible calls them earth dwellers as opposed to pilgrims and sojourners. And we fit into that category at one time. So we were walking, meandering according to the course of this world. The word course has its root in the Greek word for weather vane. A weather vane is also called a wind vane because it points in whatever direction the wind is blowing. And so the idea, it's interesting how Paul used certain words that communicate something I think pretty poignant and uh, right on the money, of course. The idea he's communicating to us is that before we knew Jesus, listen, we were turned and blown in whatever direction the prevailing philosophical, ideological, and moral winds of this fallen world system were blowing us. In other words, whatever the latest trend or fad in fashion, music, technology, morality, we would be swept up by it and would flow right along with it. We just followed the crowd. And the justification was, everyone's doing it, get on board. I mean, come on, don't you want to join the group? Do you, you want to be an outsider? Peer pressure is very powerful, especially when you're younger, okay? The older you get, the less peers you have. But, so, but it diminishes, okay? But, uh, you know, when you're young, peer pressure is pretty powerful, okay? And I remember my pastor uh, told a story about how when he was a young boy, he was raised by a very godly uh, woman. His dad was very godly, too, but he died when, uh, when Chuck was very young. And... Um, so, uh, but anyways, uh, at one point, uh, Chuck, as a, as a young boy, comes to his mom and is, uh, you know, feeling kind of bad because the other boys he liked to hang around with, well, they wanted to encourage him to join them in doing mischief. And Chuck, you know, raised by a godly Christian mom and dad, wouldn't do that. He felt bad because the other guys now were ostracizing him. And his mother gave him some very wise counsel. She said, son, any dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live, healthy fish to, to swim against the current. And that basically is what Paul is saying, only he's using wind as opposed to currents of a, of a river or something like that. Any dead fish can float downstream. Any person dead in trespasses and sins can be blown by the prevailing uh, fallen winds of this world system that Satan is in control of. It takes a live, healthy believer to fight against the current of the world is the idea. And yeah, you're going to lose some friends because misery loves company. Evil loves to hang out with evil. But you know what? That's the challenge we have set before us as believers. Are we going to run with the crowd or are we going to stay faithful to the Lord? Paul did say, if I seek to please men, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. And in another place he said, am I now your enemy because I therefore tell you the truth? So once again, to meander means to wander aimlessly or casually. And guys, that is the description, a description of how the unbeliever walks through life. The only appointment an unbeliever has to keep is with death is with death. But listen to me. 
And I'm speaking from an eternal perspective. The only life that counts, that has eternal value in the eyes of God, is the Christian life. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, Only a Christian has any sense of divine purpose and direction. For the Christian, every moment, every second counts for eternity and is to be used for the glory of God because you've been redeemed by him. Paul said, you don't own yourself. You were bought with a price. We know that was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your body and with your spirit, which now belong to him, end quote. So once again, your life, my life, your life has been purchased by God. And you are now to use it for him, for his glory. That doesn't mean you can't go on vacation or watch a ball game or spend an afternoon with a good friend. But it does mean that you and I can't waste precious time either. To quote that same author again, he said, and I quote, Is every day being used to serve God because you belong to him? Most Christians dilly-dally and frivolously waste their time on meaningless Empty things, wasting precious time hanging around watching TV or generally sleeping their life away. If most of us spent our employer's time the way we spend God's time, we'd be looking for a new job. Listen, Christian, you are living for an eternal purpose. Every moment counts. There is only one life that will soon be passed, and only that which is done for Christ will last, end quote. And Paul basically echoes that same sentiment in Ephesians 5, if you turn there. In Ephesians 5, starting with verse 15, Paul said, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The Greek word translated circumspectly is a broad word in the Greek. It carries very new, uh, various nuances of meaning. It carries with it the idea of precision and accuracy, but also has the idea of looking, examining, and investigating something with great care. But this Greek word further includes the idea of alertness. As someone admonished, he said, and I quote, as believers, walk uh, as believers walk through the spiritual minefield of the world, they are to be constantly alert to every danger that Satan puts in their way, end quote. But Christians don't because they don't see themselves as in a war for the most part. Oh, they know what the Bible says about it, but somehow that information that they have taken into their brain and agree with in principle has not been really uh, applied in practice. I mean, they don't go out wearing the armor of God. They don't put the helmet of salvation on their heads to protect their thoughts from the devil's devastating blows of doubt and discouragement. They don't put on the shield of faith, the, the belt of truthfulness, and so on. They go out into battle like they're going out a day on the beach, spiritually speaking, you know, wearing a T-shirt, flip-flops, and shorts. No wonder they're getting picked off by the devil. They're not, they don't have the mind of a soldier, when Paul lays out uh, in, to Timothy, and he liked to use uh, military metaphors because he realized we are in a war with the devil. He talked about that in great detail in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 12, and then uh, after. 
But Paul said after he laid out how God has provided for us the finest spiritual armor and, re and weaponry in the universe, he said basically it's going to be useless if you don't have the mind of a soldier. You can give a young man on the battlefield the best weapons, the best armor, but if he hasn't got a heart for the battle and is looking to go AWOL as soon as the opportunity presents itself, he's useless or she. Same thing is true in the Christian life. This isn't Club Med. A lot of people think church is all about fellowshipping and socializing and connecting so we can, uh, maybe I can expand my business. Christian life isn't a playground. It's a, it's a battleground. We have to take that seriously. And Paul's trying to warn us of this. And so to, to paraphrase what Paul is saying by taking all the nuances of the words he used, let me paraphrase, he is telling us, see that you walk or live your Christian life carefully with great precision, looking all around and giving strict attention to all things as one might do when passing through a very dangerous place. And then he adds this, if you do this, you will be wise and not a fool. If you do what? If you walk in wisdom. Of course, walking in wisdom, first of all, means that as believers, we redeem the time. That's what he said, right? Redeeming the time. For the days are evil. The Greek word for redeeming was a word used in the marketplace back in Paul's day. And it meant to buy out or to purchase completely. The word for time that he uses is not the Greek word kairos, which is, which is time in seconds, minutes, and hours. He uses the Greek word chronos, which means actually means opportunities. It's the same word used in Galatians 6, verse 10, where Paul said, therefore, as we have opportunities, let us do good to all, but especially those of the household of faith, or especially to those who are children of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the idea that Paul is presenting is that as Christians, we should purchase completely or take into our possession totally every opportunity that presents itself to be used for God. And we should be capitalizing on every opportunity we have to witness for Christ or to help another in need or to minister in Jesus' name. Why? Well, of course, first and foremost, it's the right thing to do. But he goes on to tell us that, look, we need to do this because the days are evil. The days are evil. In other words, there is a tremendous amount of pressure that is being exerted on us by the world around us. And that's the world system Satan controls. There is a great deal of pressure being exerted around us to waste our time, or even worse, to use it in sinful ways. Guys, I have never known a time when wickedness and immorality have abounded like today. When I hear people shouting their abortions, when I see legislatures standing and clapping and cheering, when an abortion bill is signed by the governor of New York, and beware, our governor wants to make one even more radical. 
And I see legislation signed that brought cheers and thunderous applause that said a baby can be terminated in the birth canal as he or she is being born. And then some are saying, well, even after that, if the abortion is botched, then the, the mom should have an opportunity to decide if the baby should be killed even after it's born. And you watch the news. You, you know the other things that we see going on in our nation. I've never known a time in our country's history where evil has been so uh, pervasive and persuasive than today. You know, there was a time in our country's history where if a man wanted to look at pornography, he'd have to get into his car, go to some seedy part of town, go into a, some adult bookstore, hope he wasn't seen, buy some magazines, come home, and after he read those things, after he consumed that pornography, it was over. And he'd have to go back and buy more. Today, there is a portal into almost every home in America where a man can dial up pornography and he will get a never-ending cesspool, a flow of pornography that would never end if he didn't want it to end where he would keep consuming and consuming that pornography. Thank God that there's deliverance and there's hope. Years ago, I remember a guy was telling me about another man that went to his church and um, after church one day, he went into one of these adult bookstores, was in there for I don't know, an hour or so, looking around and stuff. And when he walked out, he realized he had his jacket on that had Jesus on the back. He was so broken by that, he repented on the spot, and God gave him deliverance from the pornography. Sometimes it takes drastic measures. Sometimes we have to fall hard before we're willing to ask God for change. But there's hope. There's hope. But let me just say this. It's so bad today, and the evil is so pervasive, that the only way to keep from being swept away by it is to stand up and fight against it. As someone has, says, has said, the best defense is a good, strong offense. And that's why in Ephesians 6, when Paul talks about the armor of God, as you study that armor, do you realize there is no armor for the back? It's all for the front, right? There's no armor for the back. Because we're never to be retreating. We're always to be uh, going for marching forward, right? On the attack. The gates of hell cannot prevail against children of God. If they're willing to fight against the gates of hell, instead of opening the gates and standing inside where the devil is controlling things. You say, well, I want to live a holy life. I, I want to live a life that honors God. Where do I start? It starts in the private times of your life, in your hearts and in your homes. Turn to Psalm 101. I'll read it to you out of the NLT second edition. But Psalm 101, verse 1, here's what David said. 
Okay? Here's the covenant he made with himself by God's grace. I will sing of your love and justice, Lord. I will praise you with songs. You fill your mouth with praise. Didn't Paul say that in the Philippians 4 verse 8? Whatever things are good and lovely and pure and of good report and so on and so fill your mind with those things, the devil won't have a chance to fill your mind with the garbage. I'm going to walk in my house, he said, with, with praise. Uh, verse 2, I will be careful to live a blameless life. He goes on. I will lead a life of integrity in my own home. I will refuse to look at anything vile and vulgar. I hate all who deal crookedly. I will have nothing to do with them. I will reject perverse ideas and stay away from every evil. I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbors. I will not endure conceit and pride. I will search for faithful people to be my companions. Only those who are, who are above reproach will be allowed to serve me. I will not allow deceivers to serve in my house, and liars will not stay in my presence. That's a good covenant to make by God's grace with your own heart and your eyes. Then in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 25 to 27, Solomon adds some great words. His father David weighed in in Psalm 101. Now Solomon weighs in in Proverbs 4, verses 25 to 27. Listen to what he says here. Good ad admonition. He said, look straight ahead and fix your eyes on what lies before you. In other words, don't go through life meandering. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Stay on the safe path. What is the safe path? It is the path of God's word. God's word is a lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. You walk in the light of God's truth, you will never stumble in darkness is the idea. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Stay on the safe path. Don't, let, don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. The reason Christians get tripped up and fall away is because they don't keep their eyes fixed on Jesus and they don't walk in the light of God's truth. They think they can pick and choose what they obey and, you know, it's a spiritual smorgasbord, you know? I approach the Bible like the local sizzler salad bar, you know? It's like, well, hey, uh, I like this. Hey, this promise is good in God's word. I like that. Uh, hey, these are nice verses. Uh, judge, no, no, pick up your no, cross, no, I, that, you know. And they're picking and choosing. I don't know. I thought Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Most words, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, right? That's how people get off the track, uh, step off in from the safety of God's path into the minefield of the world with Satan as booby trap. You know, people don't stay committed to God's word and they walk off into the minefield of the world and things start blowing up. Their marriage blows up. Their walk blows up. You know, different things are destroyed because they're not walking in the light of God's truth. Look, none of our lives are lived in a vacuum. Either we make every effort to fill our day with service to God and the Word of God, or, listen, the evil pressures around us will rush in to fill the void with ungodly things, or at least with things worthless 
worthless things that have no eternal value. Someone has said, and I quote, it is sad to see many professed Christians drift through life like sleepwalkers who never really make the most of opportunities to live for Christ and to serve him. You know, we're going to come to this. Jesus is going to say in John chapter 9, verse 4, of himself and the way he approached life on earth and ministry. He said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Now, there's different ways to apply that, but if you applied it individually or personally, the Lord is saying, look, this is a solemn reminder to everyone who is a Christian that life's day, quote unquote, is swiftly passing. The night is coming. What does that mean? When you're going to physically die. And then your service on earth will be forever over again. As someone has said, there is only one life and it will soon be passed. And only that which is done for Christ will last. Look, guys, redeeming the time means you're going to have to sacrifice some things. Serving God is not on our timetable or according to what we want, right? If you're going to redeem the time, it means you're going to have to make some sacrifices, sacrifice some pleasures, some comforts, and even some goals in exchange for opportunities to serve the Lord. I remember hearing the story of Jim Elliott, who was a young man who was in medical school to be a medical doctor, and God laid it on his heart to leave medical school and become a full-time missionary. When his family, who were all Christians, by the way, heard what he wanted to do, they were beside themselves. Jim, what are you, crazy? You're going to give up a life of, of prestige and, and, uh, and privilege and prosperity? To what? Go into the uncertainty of the mission field? Don't be a fool. And Jim responded those classic words. That man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you truly understand what Jesus has done for you, how could you offer him any less than everything? Count the cost, right? Didn't he say that before we accept him? There's a cost involved. It'll cost you. Salvation is free. But it'll cost you everything to follow Jesus. Someone likened it to this. So imagine that the days of your life are like worthless pieces of fake money that you might see used in a board game. We'll call it the game of life. A game where God is letting you use your time, which is worthless in and of itself. But God is allowing you to use your time to buy valuable opportunities to serve him. Opportunities that will bring you priceless, eternal rewards in heaven. Listen, a person whose time on earth is spent on himself or herself winds up with a worthless, wasted life. But the person who spends their time serving Jesus winds up with a precious life and a priceless eternity. And the choice is yours. I mean, that, that's always how God does it. You can live for yourself and lay up for yourself treasures on earth which are only fleeting and transitory and will someday uh, be gone. Or you can serve God, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, and they will be waiting for you when you get there. The great 16th century reformer, Philip Melanchthon, 
kept a record of every wasted moment and took his list to God in confession at the end of each day. Does any wonder why, why God used him so powerfully? Moses said in Psalm 90, verse 12, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now you read that and go, wait a minute. Teach, teach me to number our days. Well, Lord, I don't know how many days I have in life. You didn't tell me how long I'm going to live. How can I number my days? That's true. And that's why I don't really think that's what Moses had in mind. Let me paraphrase. Here's what I think he was really saying. We don't know how much time we, each of us has here on the earth. So, Lord, give me grace to make every day count, is the idea. How? Well, by walking with purpose and not wasting our opportunities to be used by God, because, again, Paul says the days are evil. And by saying that, interesting that he says that, because I believe that Paul is pointing out to us that evil times create opportunities for good. That actually opportunities come oftentimes from evil days. You know, Henry Ford said this during the Great Depression. He said, these are actually good times. The problem is only a few people know it. What others saw as tragedy, Ford saw as opportunity. In his case, the opportunity to make money, that's true. However, the same is true for Christians today. Only our opportunity set before us is not to make money, but to save souls. For Christians, these are very good times. The problem is that few Christians realize it. I mean, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly in these last days to reach people with the gospel, and he wants to use you. His eyes go to and fro about the face of the whole earth, looking for anyone whose heart is right with him that he might show himself strong through. It's never ability, guys. In the work of God, it's always availability. What did Isaiah say? Here am I, Lord, send me. Look, I realize right now our nation is going through an economic upturn, and I'll finish with this. And that's great. I'm, I'm glad to see that more people are employed today than I think ever before, they said. I'm, I'm blessed that families now have income where they can buy food and pay the rent or the mortgage. I'm, that's a blessing. Thank God, right? Stock market's up. Times are good. But times can change overnight. The stock market could crash and wither our, our entire economy. And people will be panic-stricken. And we'll be looking frantically for anyone who can give them any semblance of peace and hope. That's where we come in. That's where we come in. Unless we're too earthly-minded to be any heavenly good. But even if that doesn't happen, I pray it doesn't. I just read an article this week, maybe you saw it. They did a survey among wealthy people and found out that most of them are unhappy and miserable. Well, we know that. Money can't buy you happiness. They need Jesus, right? And again, that's where we come in. You say, well, how can I start? Yeah, I, I want to I be a servant, uh, you know, Reporting for duty, Lord. Well, where do I start? Well, start by getting involved in ministry right now. Look around. Look for anywhere to serve. 
And don't think any ministry too small. Don't despise the days of small things, the Bible says, because as you're faithful in the little things, God will keep giving you greater things to do. You got to start somewhere, okay? I mean, a person who comes walking in our, our church for the first time as pastor, uh, I want to be used. Okay, great. What do you have? What do you? I want to be a pastor. I want to be like your right hand guy. Well, that may happen, but I got to see that you're faithful in. Other things, usher ministry, Sunday school, which we wouldn't put them in right away anyways, but we want to see how faithful they are. But you've got to start somewhere. I'll tell you where you really need to start, though. If you're going to be a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, he calls us first and foremost to minister to the body of Christ. Remember Galatians 6.10? You know, as you have opportunity, do good to all people, but especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. How can you do good for people in your own church if you don't know those folks? How are you going to weep with those who weep? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Be of the same mind toward them. Pray for those who are hurting. Provide resources to those that are in want. How can you do that if you don't know anybody? I can't tell you how many times I've walked up to the pulpit and there was an envelope that somebody had put here with somebody's name on it, and I know it's got cash in it, and they want me to deliver it to that family because they know that family's going through a hard time. But they don't want any recognition, so they want to give anonymously. God bless them. But many other times when somebody finds out, oh, I got an envelope and somebody gave me money, I was able to pay the car payment or the mortgage payment, and they're talking to somebody, well, I didn't know you were hurting. I didn't know you needed help. Well, okay, we all, can all fall into that. But let's work harder at knowing each other. That's why I encourage you, get signed up for the small group ministry. Because that's the whole goal, to get you connected with people in your own area that you can become a closer-knit group of people, that you can bear each other's burdens and pray for one another and help each other when the situation presents itself. Look, we're done. Nothing can make up for a wasted opportunity. Once the opportunity is gone, it's gone forever. And I'm convinced the road to heaven will be paved with many wasted opportunity and unclaimed rewards. And no use crying over wasted opportunities now. They're over. No use crying over the wasted opportunities of the past. Just make sure to make the most of the opportunities of the present and the future. You remember what Mordecai said to Esther, who found herself in an incredible set of circumstances whereby this little unknown gal, orphan, raised by her uncle Mordecai, one day becomes queen of Persia, right? And then wicked Haman, who hated the Jews, convinced the king that on a certain date every Jew in the kingdom will be put to death. And Mordecai came to Esther and said, you got to go into the king and you got to intercede on behalf of your people. That does not happen. And she says, you don't understand. Nobody just walked into the king's presence, not even me. Unless he puts out the golden altar, it's my head. Excuse me, the golden scepter, it's my head. And Mordecai said, do you think you're going to escape the king's decree because you're in the palace? 
you're a Jewess. This edict affects you. And how do you know, Esther, that you haven't been chosen for such a time as this? Guys, every Christian alive today has been chosen by God to be alive at this moment in history. Every one of us has been gifted by God with certain gifts and abilities that are perfect for the work he wants to do in and through every one of you. Will you be like Isaiah and say, here am I, send me, Lord? Or like so many who want to be spectators and not active participants in the work of God. I pray God will give us a burden like never before to serve him. It says of the men of Nehemiah's day, they completely built the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days, listen, because the people had a mind to work. May God give us a mind to work, to not waste another second. And believe me, when I talk to you about this, I've already been praying about myself. Lord, if I'm going to teach this, I need to live it. I need your grace. Because truth be told, I waste more time than I like to admit. Time I could be using, even if it's just studying the word or praying. May God give us the grace in these last days to go all out. All out. Jesus is coming soon. Let's get with it. All right? Let's get to it. And may he, we, we stand before him on that day and hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servants. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We thank you that you have taken us, weak, foolish, base nobodies, and given us the most incredible uh, opportunities in the world. The opportunities to serve the true and living God. Father, give us a heart that is fired up for souls, that wants to be lights in the dark world, people who have an insatiable hunger for the word, who find themselves almost obsessively praying because being in your presence is not something, it's not a duty or a chore, it's a holy passion. <coughs> Father, work in us in these last days to both will and do of your good pleasure. For we ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.